we have a really huge, uh, exciting announcement that we're making here all day at our services, and that is that our pastors and staff and elders feel, feel that the time is right to actually put our church building on the market and begin to look for a new church officially. And so what that looks like is uh, we're, we're officially going to be listing it this Tuesday, and we have a realtor that's going to be advertising this property to his connections. He has investors nationwide. And here's the deal. If some of you guys are like, wait, I don't like change. Slow down a little. What's going on here? Um, Even if we had a buyer today, it would be 16 months before we got to contract with them because of rezoning and different things that need to happen. So we got a good bit of time here and a good bit of time to look for a new spot. Just in case we sold this building and didn't have anywhere to go, there's a possibility of renting a space in Smithtown, and so we have that as a possible option. But God's going to take care of us, and we're really excited. I mean, that construction's coming further uh, every day. We're going to lose a lot of the spots a lot of you guys are parked on very soon. And so we're excited about what God has for us next, and we know it's time to start looking and praying. And the prayer that we've been praying, and we've been praying about this for years, just so you know, but the prayer we've been praying all along is, God, do something so big and so awesome that only you could get the credit. That it wouldn't be like at the end of the day, like, wow, the staff is so smart, look how they handled that. No, that it would just be something so awesome that God does. And just so you know, what we're looking for is we're not really looking for a church that's like a little bit bigger than this one. We're looking for something that we can grow into for decades. I mean, I'm talking, I want to be handing that thing off in whatever, however many years when I preach my last sermon to the next guy, and they'll still have some room to grow. So our prayer is that we would kind of have this really awesome setup of being able to maybe move into an existing building that's bigger than this, but not huge. But then in the years to come, that there'd be acreage around that building that we could build on and add on to. And so that's kind of our heart. And so that's what we're praying for. We're asking God for acres and acres. We're asking him to do something incredible. Uh, right now, we have $85,000 saved, and this building is worth somewhere in around $850,000. So we have a pretty good chunk of change already here in what we own and what we've saved. And so we're just excited about what God will do next. And so why don't you guys pray with me now, continue to pray about that, and we'll see what Jesus does in and through us. And just let me say this real quick before we jump into the prayer there, is uh, we're not going too far. Our hope is to stay within five or ten minutes of this location and so we don't want to be, uh, we know a lot of you guys travel distances to get here, and so we don't want to be going too far in one direction or another. So, all right, let's pray. God, we thank you so much that you already know exactly what needs to be done. You know that Long Island needs um, more churches and bigger churches that can continue to reach the lost and those that need the hope of Jesus. And so we just pray about this situation. We're excited. We're thankful, God, that you have given us a good problem about growing this space. I just pray for whatever's next, God, whoever's going to buy this and wherever we're going to go, that you just lead every step of it and that it would just be more than we could ask or imagine. In your name we pray, amen. So when I was a kid, my dad was all about snow skiing. He loved snow skiing and he wanted me to be an awesome snow skier along with him. But there were two problems. The first problem is that I despise the cold, like hate despise the cold. So standing on a mountain for 12 hours in the middle of a cold winter is not fun for me at all. The second problem had to do with the ski lifts. Now, I'm okay with a normal ski lift. Like those of you guys who go skiing, you guys know, like this here, that's a normal ski lift. That's a chair, man. You could sit in that chair. It'll carry you up the side of the mountain and you're good to go. But the place that we often went didn't have ski lifts. They had what's called the T-bar lift. Anybody familiar with that? That's the T-bar lift. It's this stupid pole attached to a wire and you sort of sit half, you can't even sit to be completely honest. You just sort of lean on that little red T-bar behind you. And it's not strong enough to hold your weight, but you can't not use it. You have to just sort of like kind of sort of lean on it and it's supposed to push you up the mountain. And so here I am, I'm like 10-year-old Doug. I got these 
planks of wood strapped to my feet, and I'm trying to get up this mountain, and I just keep falling off the T-bar lift. I just keep falling and, and wiping out. And, and every time that you wipe out, the T-bar lift operator has to stop the entire lift. And so people around me, I mean, you got all these great skaters, like, ah, oh, this stupid kid, and getting upset with me and getting annoyed with me. So I just kind of gave up. I would, I would let it push me for a few feet. I'd fall. A few more feet, I'd fall. A few more feet, I'd fall. And then I'd just ski down like the seven feet I got. And then I'd just go back up. And, I, you know, I wonder why I hated snow skiing. I got, I got to ski like seven feet of a mountain about a thousand times and then keep falling. The reason that this didn't work out so well for me is because that is not a chair. You can't sit in that. It cannot support your weight. It cannot get you up the mountain just lifting and carrying you. And the reason I bring that up is because I think often in church, you're, you're asked to put your faith in something sort of similar to that situation. You come into church, and a guy like me says, hey, you should believe in Jesus. You should put your trust in Jesus, and here's why. And he gives you like one piece of a chair to sit on, so to speak. He gives you like a little T-bar thing and says, here, sit down and take a load off. He says something like, hey, you should, you should believe in Jesus because of changed lives. We've seen changed lives, and so therefore you should believe Jesus is alive. And maybe you sort of think, okay, that's pretty cool, man. Maybe Jesus is alive. He's changed some people's lives, so I'll try this out. And you sort of sit down on the T-bar, so to speak, and it starts pushing you up the hill, so to speak, and you eventually wipe out. And you think, man, I don't know if I'm doing this right. Let me try again. So you try to get back on the T-bar, so to speak, and you wipe out again. And then you start to realize maybe, just maybe, this stupid thing can't carry your weight. And a lot of people give up on their relationship with Jesus right there. They go, oh, all right, so maybe some people had their lives changed, but he hasn't changed mine like he changed theirs, so maybe this just isn't true. And so my heart in doing a series like this is not just to give you a little T-bar part of a chair to sit on or get pushed up a little bit. No, it's to give you several different pieces of the chair that come together that can support the weight of your life in eternity. About seven or eight years ago, we did a 10-part series. That's the evidence CD set out at the visitor desk, and I literally built a chair on the stage, and every week we added a new piece. We started with like a wheel, then we added another wheel, then we, put, you know, we brought the, the base of the chair in, some armrest, the back, and we put these 10 parts of the chair together to say, okay, this is what you have in Christianity. You don't have one little piece, you don't have one little T-bar, you have a full chair that you can sit back in and rest in. You have all these pieces of evidence that come together and they can support your life. And so in this series, what I'm trying to do is revisit some of that stuff from the evidence series and saying, look, you don't have just one little piece of evidence to support your faith. No, there's tons of pieces of evidence that can support your faith. They come together to be that secure foundation for your life. And you can sit down and rest in Jesus. You can know he can take the weight of your life, your burdens, your sin, the guilt of your sin. And you can trust him with it. There's evidence that he's alive. There's evidence that he wants to make a difference in your life. And you can sit back and rest in him. And he will carry you through life and through eternity. And so today we're going to look at several pieces of the chair, so to speak. We're going to look at several pieces of the evidence that are so, so important. And I think this is important for Christians and non-Christians. I think it's important for Christians because I think so often, like I said, our faith is in just one piece of the chair. It's in one piece of evidence of God. And when that piece of evidence comes under fire or question, or maybe we doubt a little bit, our whole relationship with God can fall apart. But when you have all these different pieces of evidence coming together, when one little piece gets shaken, the rest of them stand strong. And so that's really important. It's also important for you because 
I just want you to know how to share your faith. I want you to be able to answer tough questions. I want you to be able to share your faith in a way that makes sense. And when people come up and say, oh, what about this objection or that objection? You could say, wait, I know the answer to that. I could tell you exactly what the answer to that struggle might be. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, I just want you to see how much evidence there is. I always joke that when I do a message like this or a series like this, it's kind of like I'm asking you to drink from a fire hose. I know I'm just like spraying out more than you can handle. But what I, what I always say is I don't want you to remember everything I say. I just want you to remember that I said a lot. I want you to remember that there is so much evidence about Jesus. And for me, this is incredibly personal because this is my story. This is why I'm a follower of Jesus. You know, I always share, like, I grew up in this great Christian home. Uh, I mean, like, super Christian. Like, if you said, oh, my gosh, you were in trouble. Like, that was, that was like bad language. Like, and if grandma heard you say, oh, my gosh, you were getting a bar of soap in your mouth. Like, straight up. I'm not making that up. Bar of soap in your mouth till you learned your lesson. The problem is it kind of backfired on her because it happened so many times to me. I kind of started to like the taste of the soap, you know? So we'd be over there for, like, a holiday, and somebody would be like, where's Doug? Like, I saw him in the bathroom sucking on a bar of Irish spring. I don't know. I had to take a double take. I don't know what's going on in there, you know? But I was super Christian, you know, and, and grew up in a great Christian home, great Christian churches, great Christian school. But then I got to college, and world religions blew that world apart. My world religions class, my psychology classes, my philosophy classes started blowing that little Christian world I had apart. And my faith was in one little piece of the evidence, one little piece of the chair. And it kind of got blown apart. And so it sent me on this several-year journey of struggling and doubting and wrestling and digging for truth. And what, we ha- what I have here in this series is what I found. And so let's start where I started. I-, I shared one piece of the chair with you last week, and it was the eyewitnesses. And we'll kind of just review that a little bit later. But where I really started was in this battle between the natural versus the supernatural. Now, this is my story. This isn't your story. So you may start somewhere different. And so this is where I began, and I started to say, okay, is the natural explanation for how we got here enough? Does it make sense? Is what we're told in school enough? Because if the natural explanation makes sense, then maybe I don't need to look for a supernatural God. And so I began to look and struggle and wrestle and look at all the science, and I'm not going to get into a ton of science here tonight. That's in part one on the evidence CD set if you want to grab that. But here's what I did come to grips with, was I just kind of felt, like I said last week, that the view was either you believed in God or you were intelligent. You know, it was one or the other. Either you believed in God or you were intelligent. And, and so I began to just struggle and wrestle with this battle of natural versus supernatural. And, and um, I, I began to say, like, all right, if, if I'm going to be intelligent, then i got to, I guess, believe in everything science says. And again, I'm not pitting science against God. I think science and God actually work pretty well together. In fact, I think in a lot of ways, science is still trying to catch up to God. And so I'm looking through all this, and I'm struggling, and, and yet here, here's something that I found, and, and I found it through someone else who was struggling with some questions like I was. And, and they found some really smart guys who had taken out an ad in a paper. And I just want you to read along with me here on the screens because I don't want to get this wrong. Here, here's, what, here's what was found in this paper. All these guys took out this ad in the paper. It was 100 biologists, chemists, zoologists, physicists, anthropologists, molecular and cell biologists, bioengineers, organic chemists, geologists, astrophysicists, and other scientists from prestigious universities like Cambridge, Stanford, Cornell, Yale, Rutgers, Chicago, Princeton, and Purdue. So these are smart guys. This is what they had to say. This is what their ad in this newspaper said. We're skeptical of claims for the ability of random mutation and natural selection to account for the complexity of life. 
They basically said, we're skeptical that the natural answer is enough. We're skeptical. And these were not Christians necessarily. These were just really smart guys who had looked at the creation and behind it saw a creator. Who looked at the design and behind it saw a designer. And so for me, that was really freeing because I was able to say, okay, maybe you can be an intelligent and you can believe in God. Maybe both can be true at the same time. Maybe you can be smart and have a relationship with Jesus. And I'd experienced a couple of supernatural things that made me think, man, maybe God is out there. And I'd also, you know, you look at the science of your body, you look at the science of creation around us, you look at uh, space and, and the depths of space and stars and planets and the universe, and, and man, I saw a designer behind it. I saw a creator behind it. And a couple of thoughts about just this battle that sometimes exists between science and, and God sort of, sort of came up. And, and one of the thoughts I had was, okay, so I can either believe that God was my creator, or I could believe in what evolution has to say. And, and, and really, the truth is, is both require great faith. That's the truth. Both require great faith. I mean, some people say, oh, either you're a science person or a faith person. No, both require great faith. Because think about this. Is it harder to believe that a creator God existed and made all things, or is it harder to believe that the complexities of you came from monkeys? Both require great faith. I didn't just disprove evolution with that statement, but isn't it true that both require great faith? And that maybe, just maybe, the supernatural is possible, and maybe, just maybe, the natural answer for how we got here doesn't cut it? Another thought I had is that science and medicine, while they're great and amazing, as as technologically advanced as we are, they're still kind of in their infancy, aren't they? Right? I mean, isn't this true? Like on Monday of this week, they'll say that coffee will kill you, and Tuesday they'll say it'll cure you of cancer and save your life. And it changes every other day. So obviously we don't quite know what we're talking about yet. There are things we're still learning. There are things we're still understanding. And I love that Science, I think, is still catching up to God. You know, a psychology definitely is. You ever been to a psychologist or a therapist? Look at the advice they gave you. You know who said the advice they probably gave you? Jesus, about 2,000 years ago. God's word probably told you to do the exact thing that therapist or psychologist told you to do. Because they're looking back, maybe sometimes without even realizing it, to the truths that work. And so for me... I came to this realization that maybe, just maybe, the supernatural is possible. Now, this is my story. So some of you here tonight might say, Doug, if you're telling me I have to believe in a creator, then I'm going to get off the bus right now. I'm not going any further on this little trip with you. Well, here's what I want to say to you. If you're going to trip over that, if you're going to give up on Jesus and God and Christianity because of creation, then here's what I want you to do. I want you to figure out what you believe about Jesus first. Look into Jesus. The main claim of Christianity is not a creator. It's one of the claims, and I think personally it's an important one. I believe what the Bible has to say, but it's also because of all the other evidence I've seen. And so my encouragement to you would be, look into what Jesus has to say. Look into the person of Jesus, because Jesus didn't die on the cross so you'd believe in creation. He died on the cross so you would have a Savior and know a relationship with God. And so that's a tension that we have to manage. But for me, that's where I started. The next piece of evidence that I kind of looked into was truth and power. Truth and power. I said, okay, if there is a creator, if there's a designer, then who is it? And where do I find truth 
and power. See, I wasn't, even though I, I grew up Christian and I grew up in this home that was largely Christian, I wasn't just going to then decide, okay, this just must all be about Jesus. No, I had to dig for truth and power. So I looked at everybody. I literally mean everybody. And I didn't just look at, at the Christian websites or the, read the Christian books about the other religions. I read the books uh, and the websites written by the people who were these religions because I, I just wanted truth. And so I went to a Buddhist website or read a Buddhist book and I went to a Muslim website and I, and I uh, looked into Confucius and Zoroastrianism and I looked into uh, L. Ron Hubbard, for goodness sake, and I looked into everybody out there, every option I could find. And I lined them up next to Jesus and I gave them all the truth and power test. And uh, the Evidence CD set, again, has a lot more detail on this. But what I basically found, I'll just give you a couple examples, is uh, and this is no disrespect to any other religion or any other way of thinking. This is just what a Buddhist or a Muslim website would tell you. Uh, I looked at Buddha. I said, okay, Buddha, what's your initial claim? And he said, well, I'd have an actual conversation with him. But, but basically what he would say back is, well, one day I was, I was hanging out under a tree and I realized that I was enlightened. I just realized that I was enlightened. Okay. All right, uh, Muhammad, what is your initial claim? My initial claim is I was in a cave one day and I saw some angels and they told me I was the holy prophet for Allah. Okay, well, let's give you the truth and power test. Buddha, can you prove that it's true that you're enlightened? He would say, no, I just am. I just am. I don't have anybody, nobody was there, nobody else saw it. I couldn't give you any reason except to say that I have understood that I am enlightened. Okay, so you really can't prove that that's true then. And then he'd say the same thing to Muhammad. Can you prove that you are this great prophet? And he would say, no, I was alone in the cave. I saw the angels. I actually thought that they were evil spirits. I went and told my wife. She said they couldn't be evil spirits because I'm a good man. Just go with what they said. And so Muhammad fails the truth test. Okay, let's go power test. Buddha, does your enlightenment have any power for me? Can it change my life? And Buddha would say, no. You have to get yourself enlightened. All right, Muhammad, does your being this great prophet do anything for me? Am I saved because of you? Am I freed from guilt because of you? What, what's the deal here? He would say, no, you have to save yourself. And so both Buddha and Muhammad and everybody else I looked at failed the truth and the power test until you look at Jesus. What's Jesus' initial claim? I'm the son of God, savior of the world. Okay, well, can you prove that's true? Actually, I can. I was publicly crucified and publicly rose back from the dead. And like we talked about last week, the eyewitnesses who saw him alive after he raised back from the dead were willing to be beaten and imprisoned and killed for their faith. Okay, well, Jesus, does your death on the cross and resurrection do anything for me? Does it have any power for me? Yes, it is your only hope. You need me to remove the sin you can never remove from your life. You need me to remove the guilt and the shame that you could never remove yourself. And so Jesus passes the truth and power tests, and no one else did. Jesus is the only one who came for you. Everybody else just gives advice, honestly. Do this, do this, do that. Then maybe God or whoever up there will help you out. Jesus didn't just give advice. He came, and he died in our place and rose back from the dead. The next part of the chair or the evidence for me was sacrifice and substitution. 
You ever feel like the first half of the Bible in the Old Testament and the second half of the Bible in the New Testament are like almost two different books? Ever feel like God was kind of grumpy and cold in the Old Testament and Jesus was kind of loving and exciting in the New Testament? But what if the whole story of the Bible and the whole story of God and man has to do with sacrifice and substitution? See, it used to really throw me that the first half of the Bible seemed like one thing was going on, the second half of the Bible seemed like something else was going on. But I want you to see that there are pictures of what Jesus would come and do as early as the third chapter in the Bible. Genesis chapter 3, as soon as sin enters the picture, you know what God does? Look what it says in Genesis 3.21. The Lord God made clothes from animal skins for the man and his wife and dressed them. So Adam and Eve sin. They're walking around in shame. And what does God do? He sacrifices an animal. And he takes that skin and covers their shame. He covers their nakedness. And instead of Adam and Eve being killed for their sin, an animal's killed in their place. And so three chapters into the Bible, as soon as sin shows up, God says, you know what this is about? This whole relationship with you, it's about sacrifice and substitution. What happened in Genesis chapter 3 is a picture of what Jesus would come and do 2,000 years later. He would come and be the sacrifice. And he would come and be the substitute. And he wouldn't just cover our shame. He would remove our shame. And so for me, that was a huge deal. And I just love that we don't do this anymore, right? We don't do the sacrifices anymore. Like you see in the Old Testament, they'd, get all, they'd sin and then they'd make all these huge sacrifices. Like you've never opened up your bulletin, had a connection card, a pen, a next level envelope, and an animal uh, sacrifice fund envelope, Right? Like, help us raise money. Get some goats and stuff in here for next week's offering, right? Never happened, right? Because Jesus was it. Jesus was the final sacrifice who died in our place. And so the sacrifice and the substitution was another piece of evidence for me. The next one and the one we're really going to kind of look at for the rest of our time, for the most part here, is the prophecies and the fulfillment of the prophecies. Prophecies and fulfillment of the prophecies. It's one thing. If somebody prophesies something and says this is going to happen in the future, it's another thing if it then happens, right? And so what we have with Jesus is so incredibly powerful. Let me kind of illustrate this for you, just how powerful it is what we have in Jesus. A few years ago, I was standing in the lobby after our night service, and I was talking with some people. And uh, this guy, Dan, came up to me with a really puzzled look on his face, and he was holding a cell phone, and he said, he said, Doug, um, Andrew, the worship pastor, he, he just called me, and he said he's in Brendan's trunk. I was like, what? And he goes, here. And he just hands me the phone. And I'm like, Andrew? He's like, yeah. I was like, where are you? I'm in Brendan's trunk. I'm like, why? He's like, well, I was standing outside, and it popped open, and so I jumped in it and closed it. And I'm thinking to myself, is that what you normally do when you see a trunk pop open? So I said, have you been kidnapped? Like, what are you doing out there? And he goes, no, see, I figured Brendan was probably on the other side of the door here bringing some of his drum gear out, and he was going to throw it in his trunk. And so I figured he popped his trunk, and I just jumped in, closed it. But, but that was like 10 minutes ago, and he hasn't come out. So he goes, you think you can get him out here so I could scare him? I, I guess, you know, so I, I go running through. I'm like, just to check on him, I actually took a picture just to make sure that you guys all believe me. There he is. So there's Andrew Brendan's trunk. And so... I'm like trying to figure out how I'm going to get Brendan out here so that this joke will work. And, and I found some a philosophy of religion CDs in Brendan's trunk because he's into all that kind of stuff. And so I had an idea. I come back and I said, Brendan, 
I have a friend I'm trying to just tell about Jesus, and, and, and they're really struggling with some philosophy religion type stuff. Would you happen to have any materials that I could borrow? He goes, I happen to have a couple CDs in my trunk. I'm like, no way. <laughs> so we go running out, and Brendan pops open the trunk, and Andrew goes, ah! And Brendan had zero reaction. He just stood there and went, wow. <laughs> you guys got me. No one has ever gotten me. And that was it. That was the whole reaction. It was incredible. So apparently what happened is Brendan was in here talking with somebody, and he just leaned back, and his, the key in his pocket popped the trunk. He had no, 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 uh, no idea of going out there anytime soon. So thankfully, I, I went out there and saved Andrew. But uh, the moral of the story is if you, if you ever, are ever asked by me for something random in your trunk, Andrew's probably hiding in it to scare you, all right? So don't trust me. No, the reason I bring that up is because can you just imagine if an hour before that all happened, someone came up to me and said, Doug, I just want to let you know that in about an hour, you're going to get a phone call. Dan's going to hand you a phone. And you're going to be a little freaked out at first, but be, it, everything's okay. Andrew's in Brennan's trunk. It's just going to be a funny prank. It's all going to work out in the end. Don't worry. Now, that'd be about five things somebody got right about an hour before they happened, right? That'd be pretty impressive. I'd be kind of freaked out if somebody could do that. That'd be pretty amazing. But do you know what we have with Jesus? We don't have five prophecies an hour before he came. We have over 300 prophecies, hundreds of years out to thousands of years before he came. And these prophecies weren't just general prophecies. They were incredibly detailed about the life of Jesus. I'm going to give you just a couple examples here. Again, on the CD set, I go into a lot more detail. But, but let's look at what David wrote. In Psalm chapter 22, this is written a thousand years before Jesus came. Psalm 22 is incredible. If you read it, you just see this amazing picture of what happened to Jesus. But look at this part of it. You lay me down on the dust of death. Oh, wow. You like that? Dust of death. Dust of death. Dogs have surrounded me. A mob has encircled me. Listen to this line. They have pierced my hands and feet. David wrote this a thousand years before Jesus came. And listen, crucifixion didn't exist yet. Not only did it not exist, it wouldn't be used as a means of capital punishment for several hundred years after David's death. And yet David in Psalm 22, which is not just this isolated verse, but a whole portrait of what it would look like when Jesus was on the cross, says, they pierced my hands and feet. What are you talking about? Pierce your hands and feet? Why would anybody pierce your hands and feet? Well, look at what John Remember we talked about John last week as one of the eyewitnesses, one of the guys who was willing to be beaten and tortured and imprisoned for saying Jesus was alive. He was an eyewitness. Look what this eyewitness John says happened to Jesus a thousand years after David says this. In verse 16 of John 19, it says, Then Pilate handed Jesus over to them to be crucified. So the soldiers took Jesus. He carried his own cross and went out of the city to a location called the Skull. In Hebrew, this place is called Golgotha. The soldiers crucified Jesus and two other men there. And so David, a thousand years before, gets this image of what would happen to Jesus, this prophetic image. Then Psalm 22, a few verses later, David says this. Think about how specific this is. They divide my clothes among themselves. They throw dice for my clothing. Wait, so David just said, okay, Jesus is on the cross. They've pierced his hands and feet. Someone's going to gamble for his clothes. They're going to first divide his clothes, and then they're going to throw dice For the remainder, we'll look again at what the eyewitness John says in John 19, a thousand years later. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his clothes and divided them four ways so that each soldier could have a share. His robe was left over. It didn't have a seam because it had been woven in one piece from top to bottom. 
the soldiers said to each other, let's not rip it apart. Let's throw dice to see who will get it. And then John quotes the psalm. He remembers what David wrote. In this way, the scripture came true. He's going, hello, prophecy, a thousand years later. They divided my clothes among themselves. They threw dice for my clothing. So that's what the soldiers did. So a prophecy and an incredibly detailed fulfillment. The next one we have is Isaiah 53. Somebody once took Isaiah 53, which was written by Isaiah 750 years before Jesus came, and they removed the name Isaiah from the top of the page and photocopied a bunch of them and handed them out in their secular workplace and said to a bunch of people who weren't followers of Jesus, who do you think these verses are written about? And everybody came back saying the same thing. Obviously, this is a gospel account of what happened to Jesus on the cross. No, actually, this was written 750 years before Jesus was put on the cross by a guy named Isaiah who had this amazing prophetic picture. And you look at Isaiah 53, if you were to read through a bunch of it, you would be floored. But listen to what it says about what would be done with Jesus' body after he died. Isaiah 53, 9. He was placed in a tomb with the wicked. Listen to this. He was put there with the rich when he died. Although he had done nothing violent, had never spoken a lie. So Isaiah prophesies that Jesus is going to be buried in the tomb of a rich man. Matthew 27, another eyewitness, Matthew, who was also killed for saying Jesus was alive, says this in verse 57. In the evening, a rich man named Joseph arrived. He was from the city of Arimathea and had become a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate ordered that it be given to him. Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen cloth. Then he laid it in his own tomb, which had been cut in a rock, After rolling a large stone against the door of the tomb, he went away. So you hear, again, 750 years before it happens. Imagine someone 750 years before your death naming where and how you'd be buried. That's what was done. And Jesus came and fulfilled it. Now, I continued to question this stuff because I I tend to be a skeptic. And so even though I saw this, I said, okay, but... But there's a couple of things that maybe don't line up. Or maybe there's a couple of ways this, this could have been almost a fraud. And so I asked these questions. The first question I kind of looked at was, how do we know that after Jesus lived, his disciples didn't go back to the book of Psalms, back to the book of Isaiah, and write in some of those details so we'd think they're prophecies? How do we know Matthew and John didn't go take the book of Psalms and write in there, oh, you know what, uh, they're gonna, they're, the soldiers are going to throw dice for his clothes because we saw that at the cross. So let's write that in and people will think that Jesus, you know, fulfilled this prophecy. How do we know that didn't happen? We know that didn't happen because in 250 BC, the Septuagint was put together. What's the Septuagint? It's the Old Testament, the books of Psalm and Isaiah translated from Hebrew to Greek. So 250 years before Jesus came, secular history tells us that the books of Psalms and Isaiah were translated from one language to another. And so we know Psalms and Isaiah were not only written, but they had been translated and copied over to different language. And so those prophecies were there. And so no, they weren't written in after Jesus lived them. And then the other question I asked is, well, maybe Jesus knew the prophecies and tried to fulfill them. Like he knew what they said in Psalms and Isaiah and all those things. So he just tried to fulfill them. Well, the reason that can't be true is because a bunch of things happened to Jesus prophetically that you can't make happen to yourself, right? 
Like you have no control over if Roman soldiers are going to put you on a cross and crucify you, right? You have no control over whether the soldiers are going to throw dice for your clothes. Jesus was not on the cross whispering down to the soldiers, hey guys, if you could just throw some dice over my clothes, it'd really help me look like the Messiah. I'd really appreciate that. Not what Jesus was doing. You have no control over whether you're buried in a rich man's tomb or not. Micah 5 says that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. You have no control over where you're born. And just think about it for a second. If Jesus somehow had gotten all those things to happen to him, what was his end game? What was his end game? You know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna make myself look like the Messiah. So they're gonna crucify me and gamble for my clothes and put me in a rich man's tomb. Great, you're not God if you if you're not really God, you're not gonna rise back from the dead. So great. You got people to believe you're really the Messiah when you weren't, and now you're dead and in a grave. Who cares? And so Jesus didn't just look back to it and try to fulfill it. He lived it because he actually was the Messiah, the Savior of the world. The last thing we'll talk about today, I'm just going to reference it quickly because we really dove into it heavily last week, is the eyewitnesses. The eyewitnesses was another huge part of this for me. It was guys like John and Matthew and people that were willing to be beaten or imprisoned or give their lives saying that they had seen Jesus. And remember what we saw last week, that people don't die for what they know is a lie. People might die for something that they believe is true, but they're not going to die for something that they know is false. And so as soon as Peter was questioned and they said, hey, if you keep saying Jesus is alive, we're going to kill you, he would have said, you know what? Just kidding. We know where his body is. We'll go get it. But that's not what happened because he wasn't lying. He had seen a risen Savior. And so for me, the evidence was more and more coming together. And this was incredible for me because I wasn't going to give my life to Jesus unless I was convinced. I'm so grateful that yes, while our relationship with God still involves faith, we can make intelligent decisions based on incredible evidence that Jesus has graciously left for us. And so you and I can look at the evidence and make decisions based on what we've seen God leave in history. The way that he's done things, the way that he made it so clear that he was actually God coming to rescue, coming to save. And so my own heart was beginning to find security in the answers I was finding. And next week we're going to continue to look into some of this. We're going to see the power of changed lives. We're going to see the power of of miracles present day. We're going to see the power of historical writings outside the Bible. We're going to look a little bit at the first century and some things that happened because of the resurrection that just wouldn't have happened been explainable any other way except that Jesus was alive. And I hope that you more and more will be convinced that the evidence about Jesus can be trusted. That's what I want you to take away from this series. That's what I want you to take away from the message tonight. That's our bottom line to walk away with, that the evidence about Jesus can be trusted. He's left us so much proof that we don't have to doubt We don't have to wonder, and we don't have to hope that when we open our eyes after we take our last breath, that then we'll finally actually know if Jesus is alive or not. No, we can know and enjoy here and now that Jesus is alive. And you know what? If you're a follower of Jesus, then this truth has to just change everything. It's got to impact everything in our lives. We've been saying this a lot lately, but I think as followers of Jesus, sometimes don't we just sort of let this whole Christianity thing just sort of be a part of our life? 
just sort of something we're used to, something we know, something we do ritualistically. We come to church Sunday, we're in a community group, we pray before we go to bed. But man, Jesus is alive. The hope that's got to bring, the joy that's got to bring you in the midst of hardship and difficulty, the fire that should light in our hearts to share this message of life with those around us that need Jesus. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, man, the incredible weight that could lift off you because your shame hasn't just been covered. No, Jesus desires to remove your guilt and shame by what he did on the cross for you and for me. And so if you're not a follower of Jesus, I would love for you to put your trust in Jesus today. And if you're not ready to do that, then I would encourage you to keep coming back as we dive in next week and close out this series. We look at more of the evidence and I would love to talk with you and share maybe, some I, had, maybe I had some of the same doubts and skepticisms that you've, you're working through right now. I would love to talk with you about some of the answers and the hope that I found. But man, why spend another day carrying your guilt and shame around? Why spend another day walking through life without a Savior? I would encourage you today to put your trust in Jesus. And if you're a Christian, I would encourage your heart to be brought to full joy, to full hope, to full engaging with this Savior who loves you so much because the evidence about Jesus can be trusted. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much that you have left us so much to look back to. And I thank you that not only that, but you've also done and are doing so much here and now in the present. And so I just thank you, God, that you are alive, that Jesus is alive. These songs we sing, the things we've been taught, many of us from the time we were a little kid, the the words we see up on a screen. God, I thank you. It's reality. It's not folklore. It's not fairy tale. It's truth, and it's life-changing. And I just thank you that we have all this evidence. If you're a Christian, is there anything that needs to change in your life because Jesus is alive today? But what does that mean to you? What should that do in your heart? What should that bring to life? What passion should grow in you because Jesus is actually alive. Who is God calling you to reach out to? Who is God calling you to share Christ with? If you're not a follower of Jesus, I would encourage you now to put your trust in him. And I would encourage you just to start a conversation with Jesus. Something like this, quietly between you and God. Maybe you could say something like this. Jesus, thank you so much for coming for me. Thank you so much for dying on the cross in my place. Thank you for forgiving me of my sin. Thank you that you want a personal relationship with me. Thank you that you love me. So God, show me how real you are. Change my life. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Begin to do something new in me. I thank you for this relationship I now have with you, this gift of salvation. In your name I pray.